Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for 8Counts, world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Ken Rejock, a former bank lawyer in Miami who spent a decade moving the profits of drug dealers into tax havens in the Caribbean and other destinations before being caught and ultimately agreed to help train law enforcement to catch money launderers. In the course of our conversation, Ken describes some of the classic methods he used to launder money and adds insight into some of the latest new methods for making illicit funds look legitimate. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with Kenneth Rejock. Ken, great to have you, who goes these days uh, by the title Financial Crime Consultant, but comes to that uh, dishonestly, I guess we could say. He is, by training, a lawyer, someone who served in the military, but he comes by that financial consultant title dishonestly. At a certain point, you became a money launderer in the course of your legal career, kind of representing drug cartels, I guess, and drug figures. So tell me, you were a good guy. What happened? Well, I've often asked myself that question, Kieran. For many years, I've always thought it was because, like a lot of other Vietnam veterans, I sort of got addicted to what you might call getting shot at and missed or risk. And I did notice later that a lot of people in the drug trade were also Vietnam vets, as were the DEA and customs people who were trying to catch us. That's always been my uh, theory. But uh, of late, I've noticed that there's quite a bit of research saying that Vietnam veterans who were exposed to what we call Agent Orange, which is a dioxin that was sprayed in the jungle, probably have a personality change and as such may be predisposed to being in a criminal matter that they would not ordinarily touch because, as you're right, you know, I come from a conservative background and You know, lawyers are supposed to, as you know, follow the rule of law and don't break the law. We're officers of the court. So it's an inconsistency, but there must be a factual basis for it. I'll probably never know. And I know that there's a kind of a eye-opening point in your career where after being arrested and all that, maybe we'll get to that story, that there's a sort of a change of heart and a dedication to something more of your life. But are we talking about with the Agent Orange, was there like a shutoff of empathy or just, again, an addiction to the adventure? I think it's um, somehow the restrictions that we all place upon our own conduct may have been diminished or may always be diminished. And that may be why there's so many uh, Vietnam veterans in prison. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how it started. You were kind of hanging with the wrong people. And anyway, tell me a little bit of how you started to basically carry money for the drug cartel. Certainly. Well, I guess you might call me the accidental money launderer because nobody actually, I would believe, intentionally gets into this kind of high-risk activity. I was getting a divorce from my first wife. And, of course, I had to move out and find a place. And I uh, hooked up with two lovely young ladies who said, you can be our version of yours, mine, and ours, and I ended up spending time with them, and one of them was in a motorcycle accident in Ohio and called from the hospital saying she'd broken her leg and she had to go stay with a friend, and would I come over and visit? So 
I drove over to a, a house in the Shenandoah district of Miami, which is mainly Latino, working class, and I met the guy who she was staying with, and in a way it was like I was looking at myself, because he was exactly my age, had also served in Vietnam, but what was curious about him was he was an Anglo from St. Louis, but he was a teacher of Spanish. Now, in a town where 70% of the people happen to be Latin and Spanish speakers, what is a gringo doing teaching Spanish in Miami, of all things? Well, turns out that he was the child of two missionaries. At a very young age, he actually was moved with his family to Oriente province, which is the easternmost province of Cuba, and he grew up in a Latin environment, so much so that he was not just bilingual, he was bicultural. So here he is... Uh, living a single life, and I'm a single bachelor now, so we became close friends. So in the future, when I needed a place to stay, he said, Ken, move in with me. And that was perfect because um, he always had a lot of great parties, a lot of girlfriends, and, you know, he basically lived a, a very good life. He didn't seem to work very much. Yeah, so I was going to say, so, but he had another life, didn't he, that it turns out he was, yes. he was using his Spanish language translation skills to... Basically, to act as a broker, but a broker of illicit substances. You know, one night I was asleep and woke up to the sound of a whole bunch of people coming in the front door with uh, packages and then people moving in the back door with satchels. Uh, it looked like trial briefcases. And obviously what I had tumbled or stumbled into was somebody who was a broker between Colombians smuggling cocaine into America and Americans and Canadians who were wholesaling, transporting, and retailing it. And at this point, you have your law degree? You have, a, like, a small individual practice? Um, I went from being a bank lawyer in a big firm yeah. to being a sole practitioner, basically where the banks are my adversaries. And so, you know, I was practicing law, but at the same time, I was going through all these changes because here I am, a newly divorced guy. My support system really wasn't there. How did this start? Did, I mean, he said, hey, you know, you're, you're seeing this. You're not protesting. Are you saying, I want a piece of this action? Or he said, hey, we could use your help. How did this start? It was a gradual thing because growing up in the 1960s, I've always thought what people do in the privacy of their own home, even if it's destructive, from my conservative background, uh, shouldn't be a crime. I pretty much just closed my eyes and let it happen because if I had really thought about it, I probably should have moved out forthwith. But I lived in that house for six months, and I got what you and I might call a master's degree in drug trafficking, because I met everybody. I saw how it operated. I met the people on the fringe, as well as the sellers, the buyers, the wholesalers. And after a while, I did realize that it was probably a threat to my safety and my health, if not my freedom. Yeah. So I moved out, and um, all these people that were my new friends all started coming to my law office. For legitimate things, of course, like I'm selling my business, I'm right. buying a boat, right. I need a corporation, I've got some business matter to attend to. Now, that's fine if you're just a regular civil practitioner. However, in this case, look at what they all did for a living. They were all involved in a drug trafficking operations. Yeah. So handling even the conventional cases meant doing things that were shady uh, right from the start because you had to help them hide income or, you know, whatever, right? It was, exactly. And then one day somebody came in the door and said, hey, Ken, I just made $6 million smuggling marijuana in from Jamaica. I need to launder that money. Yeah. Well, of course, even though I was a bank lawyer, most normal people don't have those kind of skills. Yeah. 
Uh, but then I made the mistake of saying, well, all right, I'll do it. Because I was ambitious, of course. And young lawyers who get presented with an opportunity, if they're not paying attention, they say yes, and then they try to find a way to do it. Right. I think we have this image that a lot of lawyers who become professional money launderers, you know, they barely touch the money except for that little portion that is their fee, and they set up the vehicles. But you end up carrying uh, money, right? I don't, oh, I don't right. know if you ever carried drugs, but you carried money, right? Well, it was, it was always part of my job description to not only see that drug profits were bulk cash smuggled into tax haven banks, but as necessary... I would myself smuggle the cash or the financial instruments right under the noses of uh, the security of most major American airports. So I think that's where we want to get to now. You're carrying in these bags of cash, I guess, often, right? Or I'm actually body packing it on my my chest. And so how does that work? I think at one point you started out as your first run to like Anguilla or something like that, or? I went to a number of tax havens yeah. just by using commercial air transport. I would dress up as a tourist with a Hawaiian shirt and mix and mingle with a whole bunch of vacationers that were all headed out and at the airport. I never had a problem having any of the money uh, intercepted because those airports are crowded. And back then, of course, the x-ray facilities that they used weren't strict enough and, and good enough to detect cash, especially $100 bills. As long as you didn't have rubber bands around them, if they were just loose cash in with a bunch of books or something like that, you were free to go. So how much cash would you carry and what did you know? What was the source of this cash? Was it cocaine? Was it marijuana? Was it, it, it was all cocaine or marijuana profits earned somewhere in the United States. Yeah, and how much, I mean, might you carry? Well, yeah, when you're carrying... Uh, whatever would not be too much. He did, you know, it with six figures, but it's not seven because you, you're physically constrained. Yeah. But then it came to the point where clients wanted to move huge amounts of money, and as such, it was then incumbent upon me to go find a let's just say a, a transporter who didn't ask any questions and you didn't have to tell him any lies. Yeah. And I did find a World War II bomber pilot that had a fleet of Lear jets operated in Fort Lauderdale, and he said, I'll take you anywhere in the world, just don't put any drugs on the plane. So it's just money, not drugs. Exactly. And, you know, so tell me, how do you get into a country with bags of cash and go right through their customs? And, and I think you think point out the secrecy havens, but they're in the Caribbean, but also in other places too, right? Well, the point is that there are what we call targets of opportunity. There are places like the half-Dutch, uh, half-French island of St. Martin, where they actually have abolished customs because they have a huge rush of American tourists. And you could come in there with anything in the world, uh, not just cash. You could bring in the plans for the cruise missile or the bubonic plague or anything else. And as long as you're paying the freight, they're happy to see you. So St. Martin's Anguilla, and, and you're going in and... They just wave you through. There's, as you said, there's no customs in St. Martin's. Yes, that's right. That's right. So you could fly into St. Martin on private aircraft, and then you're free to do whatever you wish. And what what do you do there? You go, there's, there, there's bankers there that are ready to meet you? Well, there's, then you would. It's always a two-step operation. Yeah. Uh, then I would cross over to the French side, take a ferry, so therefore there's no record of my transit, into the British territory of Anguilla, where right. the government was basically 
set up so that they facilitated as much cash as you could bring in there. Because remember, all this money created, in essence, a new middle class in that country. Yeah. The bank system, not just income for the employees, but the owners of these small local international banks, they had uh, an interest in the most amount of deposits that you could put into the bank. But I'm trying to think, like, how do you know who you're going to take this money to at Angela? How do they put out their shingles, and what do they do for you and everything? I, I really kind of want to understand this process. Well, it, it's always a risk, but you have to go with the referral. And, yeah. uh, you know, I come from a family of lawyers, and you can choose your friends, but you can't necessarily choose your family. And one of the five lawyers in my family had just gotten out of prison for stealing about $8.5 million from the Castro government. So, therefore... If anybody knew how to launder money in the Caribbean, that was the person for me to ask. Right. And so you get a name. And I get a name of a person who happened to be a, a foreign minister and a U.N. ambassador in one of these island nations. And you then make contact with them and make arrangements. And they're more than happy for a piece of the pie. Are they the banker or they know the banker? They, refer they are, to Yeah, they're the lawyers. They yeah. refer you to yeah. the bankers and they usually are part owners of the bank as well. And so how does this, this money get into Anguilla in a bank? And that seems to me like that's not enough. I, I, want, to, I want to be able to... No, you're right. That's, and, that's just what we call placement, getting right. it into an yeah. international... So where does it, how, what do they do from, you know, for you there, from there? Then, of course, you go to phase two, which is layering. And in that case, a lot of the money would go directly to Panama, which, of course, you know, is another tax haven, bank secrecy jurisdiction. In this case, uh, it went to, um, for some strange reason, Taiwan where the United States doesn't have a diplomatic relationship, but which uh, some of my clients actually had connections. And from there, having lost its original taint of drug trafficking proceeds, it ended up in the city in the financial district of London. Once it got to Taiwan, you could open up uh, money and wire it to London or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It ends up coming back into the London because it doesn't have any more a, a criminal taint. And uh, in some cases, it was then being transmitted into the U.S. to buy shopping centers and Canada. There is your integration right there. And, and is this all shell companies? Do you set this stuff up in shell companies? They're, they're or, shell companies. Those proxy owners. Yes, yes, and companies with uh, deceptive names, which may sound like a legitimate financial. These are often shell with three L's or something like exactly you know, the, a minor variation yes, yes correct but nobody knows who the beneficial owners are and so we've talked about the Caribbean and then you know Taiwan is there any place in Europe too like was Malta I never did any business there you know I had some strict personal rules for not just my own safety but my client's safety because remember if a money launderer loses millions of dollars he probably will lose his life too the history books are full of money launderers who did not survive because uh, they made a mistake. And as a matter of fact, the lawyer that I originally went to in the Caribbean, who was a foreign minister and a U.N. ambassador, and, you know, uh, probably was worth about $25 million because of his illicit enterprise, he had a lot of money that he got from the Irish Republican Army that was headed for Europe, which disappeared thanks to... Uh, one of the British intelligence agencies, that he was blamed. And one day he went to sea on his yacht with about 15 people, and they all disappeared from the face of the earth. Many years later, I'm at a conference, and somebody who's in the DEA takes me aside and tells me where all these people are. They're all buried underneath a swimming pool 
in Basseterre, which is the capital of St. Kitts. Uh, not a good career move, you're saying, in the long run. Uh, there's some perils associated right. with this. No, no happy endings with these states. So uh, did you use U.S. jurisdictions at all to register in? Uh, times like Delaware certainly is. Uh, and I don't think Wyoming was going crazy then like it is now. Delaware was the best, and it was the only one, yeah. not just because it was a jurisdiction of choice, but there was a, a window of opportunity when you would form a Delaware Corp using one of these law firms or financial service firms, there was a several-month gap between the time you form it and the time in which you have to designate real officers and directors. You would use that time period to register it on a boat used to smuggle drugs or for some other reason. You would use it, abuse it, and lose it. Yeah, interesting. Well, look, a lot of pressure in the U.K. to make the overseas territories have corporate registries and um, a lot of a focus from the Financial Action Task Force on countries and everywhere. So this must all be over now. You can't do it. This is all, you're talking about the past. This doesn't happen anymore, right? No, if anything, it's probably worse because with the advent of the Internet, you no longer have to get on a plane and fly to some obscure jurisdiction to form companies. You can just do it from the privacy of your own office or home. Right. And as such, you can take advantage of um, many of the online opportunities available to you transferring funds, disguising funds, and ensuring that you're probably not going to get caught. And Ken, do you know, are there some new players that didn't exist when you, in helping uh, launder money that didn't exist when you were first doing it? Well, the thing is that money launderers are only limited by their imagination. You know, in the years since I was involved in it, they have invaded uh, a number of different legitimate industries and used those industries in which to, frankly, uh, push money out the door and into the hands of traffickers and kingpins with impunity. Now, remember that in the old days, trade-based money laundering was a rarely used item. Now it has exploded. Billions of dollars are very artfully moved internationally uh, right under the nose of our law enforcement agencies because the methods used are very sophisticated and obscure. So now it's likely to be uh, a front company that had maybe even the, some of the original directors or whatever, that, but some portion of the business is being used for TBML or uh, having accounts and everything. Is that Yeah, and that in a legitimate company, the owners and the directors may not even know that it's happening. That's interesting. They may not even know it's happening. There's some division someplace, or well, how does that, ha you know? Well, if you are able to win over a, a key employee, a key employee who yeah. may be, a, yeah. you know, underpaid and uh, underfed, and yeah. human nature being what it is, you yeah. may find a way in. And there may be other reasons. Sometimes companies are short on cash, have real problems, existential problems, and as such. They may be tempted to take shortcuts, and they may not know exactly what they are doing, but bingo, they may get a federal subpoena one day and find out they've been moving cash. How would that look, just so that it's like as a warning to both financial institutions and companies like this? What might someone offer me? I'm, I'm uh, extra revenue. I mean, there's I know there's small financial institutions in the Midwest that were starting to do remote deposit capture stuff that you know, was basically used to launder drug money. It's that kind of thing like, Ken, we just want you to do this new business, or what is it? You probably won't be that kind of a direct way in which you get these people to do your bidding. You may be involved in a legitimate business just for the purposes of deceiving them as to what your true purpose is, 
another business. And, yes, and you may have found a very uh, obscure way in which to make it appear to be legitimate transaction, but not. You know, for example, in trade-based money laundering, what money launderers do is they may actually do a legitimate shipment and international trade. Yeah. However, that is true, but they may have gone to five different banks to transfer five times that amount, knowing that the banks don't communicate with one another because of the Bank Secrecy Act, and they don't realize that they're being deceived because it was a piggyback. And now one of the things, uh, you know, for instance, everybody wants to get their money into the EU or, or into the U.S. or the U.K., and I know that lately you've been talking a lot about CBI, uh, citizenship by investment and everything, and the abuse of that vehicle. What could you say about that? That seems like a new, maybe this always isn't a new twist, I guess. Maybe it's well, always happened, but it's, it's certainly now very prominent. Well, you know that most of these Caribbean islands have unfortunately dysfunctional economies. Uh, they became independent back in the 60s, and outside of tourism, they don't have any industry. They've got an expanding population, and frankly, they need to find a way to, to feed their population and, and to survive. Well, back in the very early 1980s, officials in St. Kitts hit upon this idea of selling passports, calling them CBI, or Citizenship by Investment. And that sort of spread all through the region, and now it has spread all over the world. Remember that the beautiful thing about a citizenship by investment passport is if you come from a country which is high risk and which happens to be uh, sanctioned or is involved in major illicit activity, if you can give yourself a new identity, hopefully with a new name so you won't get picked up from a sanctions list which you're already on or criminal conviction, you end up with a brand new personality, and in the developing world, CBI passports are pretty much don't ask, don't tell. So you have a method by which you can, using your own new identity, you can push money into third world banks. And from there, of course, the argument is that compliance has already been performed, and they end up in uh, the European Union or North America. Yeah. Well, again, moves to shut this down, but you're saying it's still very active. We're really almost out of time, and I know you spend a lot of time talking with law enforcement, so not to get you on the cheap here, but uh, what are the two or three things that are kind of takeaways for this audience that prevent the kind of money learning that you participated in and the, the, the kind of money learning that's happening now? Most importantly, many people in the compliance industry don't have the level of education that they need to have because their opponents are lawyers, bankers, accountants, people who have not just training but experience in financial matters. And as such, they're going to be aware of not just the typical and traditional money laundering techniques, but they're going to have what we call tradecraft. They may know 20 or 30 or 50 different techniques, several of which are over the heads of the compliance officers, and as such, they're going to pass what later will turn out to be money laundering transactions. So the first thing that I'd want to alert them to, of course, is that you need a complete education. You know, and, and the ACAMS, of course, is just frankly just a start. But it's a continuing professional responsibility. Right. You need to always be aware of all the latest publications, the latest news. Remember that when law enforcement catches somebody, there's always some information in those cases. 
which will help you and show you how it goes. The second thing that's so very important as a compliance officer is that you need to really be on top of the developments in software because whereas the money launderers are now using advanced methods, we now have advanced counter methods in our software which never existed in the past and which is always being updated. And as such, you may have a software, a computer-aided response to your particular money laundering problems. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Ken Rijak, uh, financial and crime consultant, former money launderer and uh, attorney and a lot of other things. Thank you, Ken, for being here today. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ken Rijak. I hope you found the podcast compelling and will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because Financial Crime Matters to me and to you. See you next time.